The Lifestylist, Episode 1. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Support for this episode comes from Bulletproof, an amazing way to upgrade both your morning coffee and your breakfast so you stay full, cravings-free, and energized for hours. And thanks to new Bulletproof Instamix, you can literally have an amazing creamy latte that supercharges your day anywhere, anytime in about five seconds. Check it out at Bulletproof.com, and while you're there, you can use the coupon code LUKESTORY to save 10% off your order. Welcome to episode one of the Lifestylist podcast. I'm your host, Luke Story from LukeStory.com, here to deliver to you my story. In the future, of course, the show will feature interviews with tons of amazing people, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But this one is about where I come from and who I am. And this story is called Return of the Jedi because it's a story of redemption and tells the tale of my rising from the ashes of destruction as a youth to get to where I am today. And many of the things that I talk about during the story are of course going to pertain to future episodes and what my whole lifestyleist trip is about. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you and I can't wait to get your feedback in the coming months on all of the amazing guests to follow. That being said, I'd like to take a moment to suggest that you subscribe to this show. So whatever you're listening to this on right now, I want you to stop for a second and click subscribe. You know why? Because I'll be releasing an episode every single day for the next 10 days. The guests that are coming up are absolutely amazing and I don't want you to miss them. So here's a little rundown of what you can expect during the upcoming episodes. Episode two, which will be released tomorrow, of course, features Daniel Vitalis and the title is Farming and the Fall of Man. Then episode three with Jack Cruz, Surviving the City Through Spiritual Science. Episode four featuring Evan Brand, The Zen of Stress. Episode five with Emily Fletcher, Meditation Made Easy. Episode six with Nadine Artemis, The Great Sunshine Swindle. Episode seven features Ari Mizell, Outsourcing Your Overwhelm. Episode eight with Taro Isakapala, The Magic of Mushrooms. Episode 9 with Dr. Kelly Bender, Confessions of a Vitamin Junkie. That's me. Spoiler alert. Episode 10 with Eli Block, Orgasmic Meditation. And then the following week, episode 11 will feature Tony Wrighton, How to Brainwash Yourself with NLP. Episode 12 the following week features my yoga teacher, Tej Khalsa, on Kundalini Yoga, God's Technology. The week after will feature John Gray, making peace in the war of love, and on and on and on. So after this 10 days, it's going to be once a week, and we have some amazing guests. I have tons of episodes already recorded. I'm constantly doing more. So I'm really, really excited to bring this amazing show to you. So as I said, make sure you subscribe to this right now so you don't miss these over the next few days. And even if you can't listen to them every day, you'll have them saved in your app, which is awesome. Now, if you dig this content 
and you enjoy the episode today, I'd also like to encourage you to share this with friends and family. I'd really love to get this information and get everything that I cover on the show out into the world. I've discovered so much over the years, and I think it has some real value, not only to me, but hopefully many other people. And speaking of value, I'd like to drop a huge value bomb on you right now, known as my episode upgrade. This is a free, downloadable, interactive PDF document that I've created for every episode, which features all of the show notes, links, and resources discussed in the interviews. And today's interview is an interview with yours truly, of course. So what I've done is I've selected some of the key highlights of the story and put those links into the document. But the coolest thing about this particular episode upgrade is that it contains this amazing video that I made of myself making my crazy bulletproof coffee drink. The video and the recipe are known as Supercharged Bulletproof Coffee. And I made this a couple months ago and I've been really excited to release this to you guys because so many people ask me what I put in my coffee, what are the herbal upgrades and all these sorts of things that I put in there. So I made this really high quality, amazing video and totally clickable recipe menu for you guys. So it's gonna be something I think you definitely wanna download. And the best thing about it is that it's totally free to you, my listener. So how do you get it? Super easy, you can do it by text or you can do it by browser. Here's how you get it just by texting it right now. Literally, you could have it in two minutes. Text Lifestylist1 to the number 44222. So text this word, Lifestylist, and the number 1 to 44222. Or if you had a browser, just go to lukestory.com forward slash Lifestylist1. That's lukestory.com forward slash lifestylist1, and you will get an instantaneous free download of the episode upgrade and all of my featured favorites, which it contains. It's pretty awesome. As an avid listener of podcasts, I have a really hard time keeping up with all the show notes on people's websites and trying to pull the car over and write something down or text myself. It's kind of a pain in the ass. So I've taken all of that hassle away for you because I'm so grateful to have you here. So I'm going to be doing this all the time and I think there's some really amazing resources that you'll be able to get instantly emailed to yourself. It's pretty cool. So I think that takes care of all of our business. Without further ado, I would like to just welcome you to the premiere episode of the Lifestylist podcast. So here I sit, Memorial Day, it's about 8:30 p.m. And this is my peak time. This is the time when I'm most creative. And so I chose this time to do episode number one. I'm sitting here alone in my home studio. It's a trip, just sitting here talking to a mic, looking at a screen with some notes I've got. Here goes. This is my story. This will be actually the 23rd episode of the show that I've recorded, uh, but it'll be my first release. So the way the thing works in podcasting is your episode one is usually meant to tell your story and sort of set the stage the rest of your show. But I have a ton of them in the can and I've been dying to release them. And to be honest, I've really been procrastinating this particular episode recording uh, for a number of different reasons. One, just because procrastinating (laughs) is one of my uh, lingering character defects and because recording this episode is challenging for a lot of reasons. One is because my history is fairly racy. So I debated a lot about how much detail I wanted to go into. You know, I had to talk to quite a few friends about, 
you know, how uh, risque I wanted to be because on one side I can go very provocative and just shocking and just tell these crazy stories about my past. And on the other side, you know, I could play it really safe. So I think I found a happy medium between very honest and raw while still exercising a bit of prudence. And uh, a lot of that, of course, is to protect the innocent (laughs) that haven't elected to be named. So there aren't a lot of people talked about in here because, you know, I didn't get their permission. But as it stands, tomorrow's my deadline, and i got to pay my sound editor, Brian, for a day because I put him on hold uh, whether I finish this or not. So I pretty much painted myself into a corner here to get this done. Good news is for you, and hopefully for me, that I work well under pressure. And I find that sometimes I actually do my best work at the very last minute, and this is the last minute. So before I launch into the story, I want to thank, first off, my friend and business partner, Lauren Messiah, who's been just kicking my ass to get this podcast done and was so supportive in me just moving forward with this next project in my life, which is being a lifestylist. And I'd like to thank Jordy White, who's a friend who did the theme show music for the show, which will be in every episode, and my sound editor, as I mentioned, Brian Para. But most of all, I'd like to thank my faithful show producer, Tati Mello, who's been with me through this whole six months of trying to put this together and working on my website and just diligently supporting me from her eco-friendly little self-made resort on the big island of Hawaii. So hi, Tati, and thank you so much. So the story starts like this. I was born in Denver, uh, October 29th, 1970, as a Scorpio. And I lived in Aspen until I was about three And then my parents got divorced and I moved. So my hippie mom from Berkeley visited Colorado, fell in love with my cowboy father and moved there to get married. And here comes Luke. So my first memories are all sort of in the summer in the Rocky Mountains. You know, Aspen's just beautiful in the summer. And I don't remember snow, weirdly enough. What I remember is like the Eagles music playing and John Denver music and the smell of weed and incense. And I remember my first experience with natural medicine and that was going this is one of my only memories it's weird but i went out in the backyard i just have vague memories but this was like an event that i remembered and i guess you'll see why but i went out in the backyard with a stick and there was this big wasp nest you know they make these giant sort of cocoon looking nests out of mud you know i took this stick to the wasp nest and just beat the shit out of it like a pinata. And of course, obviously got covered in stings and it was just a disaster. But for some reason, rather than taking me to the hospital, my mom elected to spray down the garden bed. We had like this little garden bed outside with water, make a bunch of mud and essentially just cover me in mud and bury me in there and leave me in there for a little while. And I guess it worked because I lived here. I am to tell the story, but that was my, you know, my mom was really into health food and, you know, natural healing and stuff like that, which I'm very grateful for. And that was my uh, my first experience with it. So my mom and dad got divorced, and I moved back to California with my mom. And my mom was, you know, born and raised in Berkeley. She was very liberal. She smoked weed, drank wine, listened to Marvin Gaye. She was really beautiful. She was just a cool woman, you know. I mean, I really liked growing up with her when I was a kid. And she worked really hard as a waitress, mostly at night. And so there wasn't a lot of discipline around when I was a kid. I kind of just did my own thing. Uh, She showed me a lot of love, though, and she did her very best to be a great mom. I mean, you know, when you get older, you look at your parents and, you know, when you're a teenager, you think they sucked at it. And then you get older and you realize, fuck, they didn't, you know, how were they, how were they to know? But I think she, you know, she had a lot of love for me and she really did the best she could, even though, you know, on both my sides, 
uh, parenting was a little bit lacking in many ways. And we'll get to my dad in a few. But she always made sure I had the best clothes. She fed me health food. She used to make me take like massive amounts of vitamins. And this is in the 70s when vitamins weren't cool. She was quite progressive. So she'd give me these big horse pills. And a lot of the time I'd end up just hiding them under the dining room rug. And I remember we lived with my grandma. And when we moved out, there was just like $2,000 worth of vitamins, you know, just crusty old smashed up vitamins under this rug. But she was cool, man. Like growing up, she'd take me to the opera and to concerts and museums and stuff in San Francisco. And I loved going to the city. Like I knew early on that someday I would escape these crappy little small towns where I lived as a kid out in the country and move to the city, which I always assumed would be San Francisco. But we'll find out later. It was, in fact, not. But she, um, you know, instilled a lot of great values in me, just about kindness and human rights and the arts. And she was definitely you know, like a peace loving person. And that's something that stuck with me. But basically she just kind of let me run wild because her parents were so strict. So I didn't have a lot of rules. As I said, we lived in a small town in Northern California. It's called Sebastopol. And this was the 1970s, you know, so there were a lot of drugs around. There were tons of marijuana growers up there. If you know anything about the geography of California, or if you're an avid weed smoker, this might be meaningful. But we lived in Sonoma County, and there was one county above that called Mendocino, and then there's another county above that called Humboldt County. So as you can imagine, that was the environment. So there were a lot of cocaine dealers and Hells Angels around the house. I mean, it was definitely a rough crowd (laughs) in, uh, in my family home there. And I ended up taking my first drink at around six years old. I think it must have been either a Schlitz malt liquor or a Colt 45. I just remember it had a badass looking animal on it. And that was, you know, at least something that I found attractive enough to give it a try. But I think I probably just wanted to be rebellious and be like the grown-ups. So around that time, I experienced some pretty severe trauma and immediately started to have a lot of emotional problems. So I was kicked out of school in the first grade for fighting. I was lighting fires, reading dirty magazines, just absolutely raising hell. And I hated school. I mean, most kids are like, eh, I don't want to go to school. No, I mean, I hated school. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I had a lot of problems as as a result. But my my escape was always nature and animals. You know, I lived in pretty remote areas and small towns, and that was really my first coping method. I could always get outside. So I loved swimming in lakes and rivers and catching snakes and just running around out in the country. That was my happy place. Interesting thing happened when I was about eight or nine. My mom took me to see a famous Swami named Muktananda at an ashram down in Oakland because my mom, you know, was kind of into that stuff. I just loved this experience and it's something that has always stuck with me. I think it influenced my life probably to this day more than I'm even aware. When you're around, you know, the energy field of holy people, I think it sort of leaves a lasting impression on you energetically in some way. And I remember... (laughs) You know, you went up, it was a darshan, you know, so you go up and you give an offering. So they probably gave me a little candle or flower or something to leave at the feet of the guru. And I remember he said to me, you have a very old soul. He was this little sort of frail Indian man. And I just thought that was so cool. When I was a kid, I was like, yeah, you know, when you're a kid and someone says, you know, you're an old soul, it carries a little weight. And so I always liked that. My mom you know, told me later, she said, I was just totally enamored with this old guru. And that would continue into my adult life. 
So then I'd spend the summers in Colorado with my dad. And my dad was very rugged. He was a tough guy. I mean, he was like the consummate Marlboro man. He raced stock cars. He carried guns. You know, there was like a shotgun rack in the truck. He had a gun under his seat. He had a gun in the nightstand. I mean, he was like a real mountain man. He was a rodeo star, a ski patrolman, and he was also very angry. I was so afraid of my dad. It's like I wasn't tough enough to keep up with him. He was, he was a rough guy. I mean, once we were way up in the mountains, we used to take these just insane pack trips in to go fishing and hunting and all this. And we're way out in the middle of nowhere, and we have all these like pack horses, and horses were riding and mules and stuff like that. And one of the horses injured its leg, and my dad just gets off his horse, points a gun at the horse's head, the injured horse's head, boom, busts the cap in his skull, drops the horse, and just proceeds to just take the saddle off that horse, throw it on one of the pack horses, and we just kept going. I mean, it wasn't even, there was no flinching, there was no talking about anything. It was like, yeah, he's not going to make it down. And, you know, my dad's a really intelligent guy. It's not like he, he, he did that in vain or was trying to be badass. I mean, he loved his horses. I'm sure it was difficult for him emotionally, but his ass was not showing it, trust me. He knew that the horse couldn't get off the mountain, and that was the logical thing to do, and we just kept it pushing. But for me, you know, I'm a really sort of sensitive kid from California, you know, so this was, this is kind of stuff that was going on all the time. And I just didn't know what to make of that. So I spent a lot of time kind of cowing down and hiding from this sort of behavior. And there was another time, another great story, actually. My dad, I'm sure is going to end up listening to this. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about any of the really gnarly stories. These are the ones that are just, you know, these are like family fun stories. But once on a bear hunt, his buddies, like, there was a bear uh, mama, right? And I think she had a couple cubs, I think two cubs. And anyway, they killed the mom, and they ended up killing one of the cubs by accident, by causing it to fall out of a tree where they had treated it. Anyway, mom dead, one of the cubs dead, and then there's one left alive. So my dad goes up, catches the bear with his bare hands, with a gunny sack, and just throws it in the back of the truck. We had these like dog kennels in the back of the truck for bear hunting. He throws them in one of those and we take it home. And that bear was like our pet bear and lived in the hound dog kennel outside my dad's house. It just, yep, that's our bear now. Eventually it got too big and had to be given to the Denver Zoo. But this is the kind of shenanigans that, you know, my dad was getting up to in Colorado. And it was just a strange and terrifying world to me as a California kid that was into skateboarding and listening to music. I mean, it was just intense. And it always broke my heart to kill fish and animals, you know, and later on in life, I actually became a vegetarian for a really long time. I, I never quite could get the hunting thing. Now, from my dad's perspective, that's how he grew up. And I mean, he has more of like a Native American approach to it. You know, he lived off the fish and the food. I mean, that was, we had a big freezer in the garage and that's what we ate. It wasn't like because he was sadistic or something, but, you know, I was a really, really sensitive kid. So it was a bit much for me. But when I was visiting in Colorado, I would just get so bored. You know, my dad worked a lot. He owned an excavating company, which is uh, also known as like an earth moving company. And this means he owned all these tractors and things like that, which I thought was kind of cool. I like playing with trucks and tractors, but he was a very driven entrepreneur. And so, you know, I was always riding along with him to work and he would just, he'd, he'd just go off and leave me forever. And I was just so bored. Um, <laughs> So I used to get in all kinds of trouble and he dragged me around the Southwest on these rodeo tours. He was a team roper 
And we just drive forever through, you know, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Montana, etc. And, you know, we'd just be riding in the truck 10 hours, 12 hours, and he would just chew tobacco, sing Hank Williams songs, and use his radar detector to avoid getting pulled over. And how I would survive the boredom of the rodeos was by sneaking around and drinking all the half-full Coors cans that were left on the bumpers of the trucks in the parking lot. I swear to God, like, in the 70s, if you're a cowboy, it was a requirement to drink Coors. And I was always, even as a kid, going, I'd really like some variety here at one point. Can someone drink something else? And then, of course, later on you know, in life, I got to try many different types of beer. Way too many. But I think my dad resented my mom for making me soft. You know, he used to do little, maybe passive aggressive things, or maybe he was just trying to be a good dad, probably. But my mom and dad were always in a war with me in the middle, you know? And he used to send me back to my mom's in California with these giant knives and BB guns, which of course my peacenik mom would then confiscate. So it's like he was determined to make me more macho, and my mom was determined to emasculate me so I didn't grow up to join the boys club, as she called it. So it was sort of a tug of war between the masculine and feminine. And I'll tell you what, it's taken a long time. I'm 45 now. <laughs> it's taken a long time for me to find some balance in those areas. And on that note, you can look forward to the upcoming episodes with John Gray and Dr. Pat Allen on that very topic and relationships. Amazing episodes. So my dad was this great businessman, and he was very much a self-made man. So as rugged and tough as he was, and sometimes just quite angry and mean, to be frank... He always instilled in me these great principles, and one of them was, and I heard this all the time to the point where I hated it at the time, but that is, there is no such thing as can't, because he'd always push me to do these really difficult things, you know, out in the woods and whatever it was, and I'd say, I can't, Dad, I can't, I'd be crying, say, there's no such thing as can't, and it sucked at the time, but it really stuck with me, and I think in the end, in some weird way, gave me sort of an inner strength and confidence. But I was extremely lonely as a kid. I just, I didn't fit in. I felt alone all the time. And being left alone so much didn't help. So I was having suicidal thoughts at a really young age. And even when I was around a bunch of people and at school, it's like I just felt like an alien. I literally felt most of my life, and sometimes this persists to this day. I mean, I have ways to deal with it now, but I felt like I was dropped off on the wrong planet by mistake. It's like I was I was implanted into some woman on planet Earth and they were like, oops, uh, you know, wrong planet. But it was too late to come pick me up and take me to where I was supposed to go, where people were normal. I just felt really odd and uncomfortable, really, really uncomfortable. So I would treat that discomfort and that loneliness by thrill seeking at first. And, you know, a little bit of drinking when I was a kid and stuff like that. But it wasn't it wasn't habitual at that point. But I would just get into all this dangerous shit. I was like a real daredevil. And <laughs> at my dad's, I would do things like play with his chainsaw when he left me you know, home alone. I would take bullets and smash them with rocks to explode them. Um, at my, back at my mom's, you know, she had this boyfriend who was a um, pretty interesting character. He you know, dealt cocaine and ran guns. And uh, so he'd have this closet full of guns and I would take his Uzi out in the backyard and <laughs> shoot his Uzi. I mean, that's the kind of shit that I 
did for fun and entertainment when I was a kid. And as you can see, if, if I had a lot of supervision, those things would have been difficult. And on the Uzi note, I always thought it was weird as an adult when I looked back on that. Like I lived in suburbia. It wasn't like with my mom, I lived out in the woods or something. I'm thinking like, why didn't anybody call the cops? I mean, imagine you go into like a small town suburb now and be like, that, 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 in the backyard. You'd think like a SWAT team would show up and kick the door down. But I don't know. Maybe I only fired a couple off. No one really noticed. I'll never know. But it's a miracle that I survived some of those methods um, that I used to sort of escape. Then going into my teen years, I had a lot of emotional problems. I was constantly kicked out of school and I don't really remember having any friends as a kid. And I don't mean that to, you know, make you feel sorry for me, but it's it's just the way it was. I mean, it seems like most people I know, it's like, oh, there's this kid I went to junior high with, or I've known this kid since elementary school, or this is my friend Bobby. We went to high school. I only remember like the names of two or three people from my childhood. It's just, I moved around a lot, had a hard time making friends. So looking back, I was basically self-raised. I mean, my parents did the best they could, as I said, but I was left to my own devices a lot. I was basically raised by wolves. My first real escape from reality, though, was rock and roll. I mean, thank God for rock and roll, baby. (laughs) Seriously. Music became my religion. It was my medicine. When I first heard Jimi Hendrix, I think it saved my life. And And I don't say that, you know... by exaggerating i mean seriously when i heard like led zeppelin and black sabbath and hendrix and these records i used to listen to at my uncle's house i mean it just did something for me it took me to another place and because i was so sort of tortured inside i needed to go somewhere else where i was was not fun (laughs) i just idolized the drug addict rock stars i mean i was very aware of like what drugs were because of the environment that i grew up in and i thought it was just so cool i associated both of those things together and i vowed to myself that someday i would move to the city and become not only a rock star but a drug addict and that did come to fruition as we'll soon find So soon after the music, of course, you know, like I said, along with that came a lot of drugs. And all of us kids up there in Northern California, we stole drugs from our parents' stash. It was so easy. I mean, everyone's parents were, I don't know, they were like all dealers or in the import-export business. We would steal these huge blocks of hash and just giant bags of Coke and crystal meth and weed. I mean, I remember you'd go to someone's parents' house and uh, some kid's house and dig through their parents' closet and we would find like giant glad bags of weed. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, you steal a little roach out of, you know, mom's ashtray. I mean, it's like you would steal pounds of weed from people's parents. You know, it was just, it was crazy. And I, I worship Cheech and Chong, you know, aside from music, Cheech and Chong records were like my favorite thing ever. And you know, these were my idols. So it's, it's no wonder that things got a little dark later on. So by the time I was 14, I was basically unable to stay in school and I was having a lot of legal problems. So I started robbing houses all the time. When I would run out of drugs in my home, whether they were, you know, belonged to my mom or boyfriend or me, then I would have to branch out into the (laughs) surrounding uh, houses. And so basically I had all my neighbors' apartments and houses on lock and I would rob them all the time. And eventually I got caught doing that in a really terrifying way. I was inside a house and had rants, not ransacked. I mean, I didn't vandalize. I wasn't a dick. I just stole your shit. I just, I didn't hurt anything on the way in or out. Actually, most of the time I went in and out undetected. You know, I, I wouldn't, 
I didn't want to be noticed because I was a repeat offender. I wanted to keep going in and out of these houses all the time. Anyway, shit was crazy. So here I am, I'm 14, I break into this house, stole a bunch of stuff, cameras, just, you know, any money that I found. I think they were growing weed on the back porch, and so that's what kind of tipped me to, to get in there in the first place. But I took a bunch of stuff home and, you know, was stockpiling it in my garage, and one of the things I had stolen was a bottle of brandy. So I went back to my garage started stashing the first round of stuff because I could only carry so much at once, right? I'm only 14. <laughs> and I got drunk. And then on this brandy, and I went back in the house, and I don't know what I was doing. I think I found some fireworks in there. I mean, I was just stealing anything that a 14-year-old would dig. I mean, what would you want to find in a house if you were 14? That's the shit I was stealing. And then I hear this keys in the door and the people come home. I mean, can you imagine? God, it was terrifying. And so I ran, and they caught me, and I was, of course, arrested. And I got... It was my first offense, so I got put on probation, but I had a four-year sort of term hanging over my head at a real, like, juvie, at a juvenile detention center, like a prison for kids. So if I did one more thing, I was going to get put away, so they suggested in court that I leave the state, and that's what happened. I got sent to this cult-type boarding school in way up in northern Idaho called Rocky Mountain Academy. And it, it has since closed, but it was the sister school of a school in San Bernardino, California called SIDU. And graduates of these schools, oddly enough, now refer to themselves as survivors. It's not even like, yeah, I, this is my alma mater. This is where I went to school. It's like, I'm a survivor of this place because they did a lot of strange and experimental ther therapy there. And you couldn't escape. So it wasn't a lockdown facility. There was a place in Provo, Utah, where the really bad kids went, and that's what I was always afraid of. So I kind of, you know, minded my P's and Q's there. But even if you wanted to escape, it was so far out in the middle of goddamn nowhere that they would send these kid bounty hunters after you and catch you before you even made it to the town. And if you made it to the town, you definitely weren't getting on a bus or make it into an airport. So it just is basically like, you know, a prison without walls. So they did all this strange, you know, therapy there, which ultimately ended up really saving my life. And I'm so grateful, really, to that school. I don't consider myself a survivor. I had a great mentor there. It was like the first, it was the first adult that I ever trusted and listened to, a guy named Tim Brace. And he, he just really had a huge heart. And he, he, I don't know, he just took a liking to me. And he was always there for me. So I'm always grateful for for that, you know, one safe adult in my life that was really there for me. And I kind of went along with it. But some of the shit they did was pretty trippy. They used sleep deprivation, uh, primal screaming. They had all this forced labor punishment. And they would do these extreme wilderness isolation sort of campouts where they would send you out into the woods with like a 60-pound pack. And, you know, I'm a skinny little 14-year-old kid at the time. And then you'd have to go dig your own snow cave, like build a snow shelter and stay there for three days by yourself. It was called a solo. And that wasn't punishment. That was just to build your self-esteem or whatever. I don't know. It scared the shit out of me. I still don't like being, you know, by myself in the woods. I guess I'm domesticated, as my friend Daniel would say. But you know, I haven't quite got there yet, but that school was a trip. So basically I had two years of nonstop, I mean nonstop, this is seven days a week group therapy. And it was often led by adults who had zero credentials. I mean, these were just kind of ex-hippies that got into the self-help movement. And I, I don't know where these people came from, but a lot of them were definitely crackpots. And um, a lot of the 
you know, therapy, I think now would probably be lawsuit worthy. But anyway, I made it through and I was released, you know, paroled at 16, totally reformed. They'd cut my long hair. I was like this little heavy metal kind of hesher when I went in there and uh, they took away my rock tees and I walked out in a pink Izod shirt and acid wash guest jeans. It was 1986 and I was ready to be a good little preppy. But the thing is, they sent me back to Colorado to live with my dad thinking that that would be a safer rebound than going back to California with my mom where all these problems started. But the thing was, I had no social or coping skills. I still didn't fit in. I still felt like an alien. It's like I had been reformed. I worked through a lot of my childhood abuse and you know had all this amazing, really deep group therapy and all that. And I should have been okay, but I just didn't know how to relate to kids. And I still hated school. I mean, the boarding school that I went to didn't really have any educational curriculum, which is part of the problem of my reintegration. I went back into like a normal American high school and I didn't know shit. I was two years behind from going to this weird cult school. So that was part of it. So obviously I didn't fit in there. And, you know, I was from California. It was like a little redneck town and the kids would go hunting and fishing after school. And I'm like listening to punk rock. I mean, it was not going to work. So I found all the other little rebel kids, you know, the trench coat mafia kind of kids and uh, started hanging around with them. I had maybe four or five little misfits and started drinking a lot out at these kegger parties in the woods and driving drunk and taking acid at school. I dyed my hair black, got my ears pierced. I wore eyeliner. So this all freaked my dad out. I mean, he was not used to a boy coming home wearing eyeliner and earrings and stuff. I mean, he was by no means a bigot or a racist or anything like that. He was way too intelligent to be that narrow-minded. But I do think he was a little concerned. So he used to always ask me, hey, son, uh, you, you dating any girls? Got any girlfriends at school? You know, he's, He was always like getting a report on that. And I even knew at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah, dad, I'm good. I'm good, you know. And I think maybe he just wanted grandkids someday. But the cool thing about it was he used to let me bring girls over to the house after school with no supervision. He would just bounce and leave me there at home with my little girlfriends, which was not common at that time. I still hated it in Colorado, though, and so I'm in high school out there, and I basically fled that state for California the year I was about to turn 18, and I moved back to my mom's. But I got back to California, and being there didn't help at all. I still just didn't fit in. I still didn't feel good. I still felt uncomfortable. And I enrolled in high school out there in California. I actually totaled my car on the first day because I was smoking weed on the freeway, like driving with my knee. And, you know, I guess I made it to school a few days later, but I still felt dumb, alone, and frustrated. I just couldn't do it. It was too much. I only had like two friends. To me, high school was like a small prison that was just easier to escape. So escaping is exactly what I did. I counted the days until I turned 18. And when that day came, I vowed to quit school forever and move to the city and play in a band. So I dropped out of high school October 29th, 1988. And I'm going to tell you, that was one of the best days of my life, literally. I hated school. (laughs) How many times do I have to say that? It's just, it's so ironic that years later I would end up starting one myself. I mean, who knew? The irony. So little did I know, I'm up there in Northern California and only two years later I'd end up in LA playing music with all these musicians that I'd worshipped as a teenager. And if I didn't end up playing with them, I most likely sold drugs to them. 
And my mom was not too stoked about this new rock and roll freedom. You know, I drop out of high school and I'm just running wild, going down to San Francisco and seeing shows. And she'd gotten sober in the meantime and actually made me attend some 12-step meetings in order to live at her house. That was one of the rules. So I'd get super high before I went. And I don't know, I I kind of enjoyed it. It was cool. I, d- I didn't mind going to meetings, I somehow knew that there was a solution to what was wrong with me there, but I just wasn't ready for it yet. So when it came time to move out of the house, which I was probably kicked out, if I remember right, uh, San Francisco was just too boring, and there were really no opportunities in music there for me. So in December of 1989, I moved to L.A., and my life was about to go from fast times at Ridgemont High to train spotting. If you've seen those films, this will all make sense. So I moved to Hollywood with my record collection, like 500 bucks, an ounce of weed, and my cat Razzle. Soon after my records got stolen, I spent the money, I smoked the weed, and my cat ran away. But I didn't care. I was in Hollywood, and I had no rules. I had no parents, no one to answer to. It was heaven. So here I was, 19 years old, small town kid with a brand new fake ID, was this, which was a driver's license that I found on the ground. And you know what? I'll never forget that ID. The guy's name was Manuel Luis Cordova, and he was a really short, dark-skinned Latino dude. So, you know, which I don't even know how I got away with using this. But Manuel, if you're listening to this, thanks for the ID, bro, and thanks for helping me to become an alcoholic. I lived in this house on DeLongpre Avenue with this guy Les and a couple girls from Seattle. Now, Les moved away to the UK right after I moved there uh, to play in a band with this guy from a band called Hanoi Rocks. But before he left, he hooked me up with all of his friends who were like all these really cool people in bands. And a lot of them were people that, you know, like I said, I grew up listening to and everyone was way older than me. So I was like the new kid in town, literally. And they all looked after me. And a lot of them were, you know, like 30 year old, super hot girls. And they would all come around and pick me up and take me out to bars and see bands. And it was a really, really fun, kind of sweet, innocent time for about five minutes. But uh, I became friends with all these Finnish guys, and they were in a band called Smack that I was also a huge fan of in high school. And they taught me a couple things. First, they taught me how to drink properly. I mean, I had never seen people that drunk in my entire life. These guys would just get hammered. And I grew up in an alcoholic home, so I was like no stranger to uh, people being inebriated. But these dudes were next level. But more importantly, Ron A., one of the guys in the band, taught me how to play bass. And it was great because it's like, I never had the confidence to think that I could play in a band. I was just, I had such low self-esteem and I thought in order to play in a band, you had to be some child prodigy and have some God-given talent. And Ron A., God bless him, was like, what are you talking about, dude? It's like, there's only four strings and however many frets there are here. Here's how it's done. And he just, he taught me a couple scales and, you know, threw me into a band basically. And that was kind of the beginning of my music career. Now you got to understand that in the early nineties, Hollywood was a really strange place. This is around the time of the Rodney King beating and the subsequent LA riots. There was the Northridge quake, the OJ trial, the Tupac shooting, that whole five year period from, you know, 90 to 95 was pretty trippy. And Hollywood was really seedy and really dirty. It was overrun with gangs, crack, and a really corrupt police department. So I started to find myself keeping pretty shady company, and my drug use was increasing day by day. Now, I was doing a little modeling at the time, and on one of these jobs, I met a fashion stylist on the shoot named Kikai Mingus, who happened to be the daughter of jazz legend Charles Mingus. 
but we dated for about two weeks and then moved in together <laughs> as it goes right and i'd never met anyone like her i mean she was fantastic she was um mixed race and she was from new york city she was 10 years older than me very cultured really smart really cool and she way cooler than me. I mean, she like put me on the map, you know, she taught me all about fashion and blues and jazz. And I was listening to the Rolling Stones, you know, my all time favorite. And she was like, Rolling Stones. Have you ever heard Howling Wolf? I was like, whoa. You know, so it was, it was a real um, epiphany to, to meet her. But we fought like cats and dogs and of course broke up, you know, shortly after, mostly because I loved to party, I think more than I ended up loving her, sadly. But I started to go deeper into both the drug scene and the music scene, which was basically the same thing in L.A. And I started my first band with this girl that I met named Kim Nail and my Finnish friend Rane and a tattoo artist named Howard. And Kim was a fantastic singer. She had grown up in the projects in the Bronx and sang in church. And she could sing Etta James and Aretha Franklin note for note. I mean, I'd never physically been in a room with someone that could sing like that. I mean, I don't know if I had seen anyone sing like that at a concert. She was absolutely stunning, incredibly talented. And she later went on to actually sing with Slash and then sing with Marilyn Manson, which is how I first met those guys back in the day. And ultimately how the bass player Jordy White, or Twiggy as he's known in the band, ended up doing the theme music for this very show. So interesting how those things play out. And then Howard, the keyboard player, he'd played with Guns N' Roses and with some guys from the New York Dolls, which were two of my favorite bands, of course, you know, in high school. And uh, one of my musical highlights was getting to jam with two guys from the New York Dolls in a garage band type of reunion. And that was just one of those situations. I'm sitting there going, if you would have told me this a couple of years ago, I would never believe that could ever be possible. And there was another time I got to record with this drummer named Hunt Sales, who's one of my favorites. He'd played on the Iggy Pop album, Lust for Life. And that was like playing with one of the Beatles to me. So, you know, if, if I would have known that I would move to Hollywood and have all of this dream start to unfold, I mean, I just never would have believed that. But at the same time, I'm sort of living this dream. And because of the drug use and the drinking and the people that I was starting to spend some time with, it was actually starting to cross that line into being a nightmare. So it's really bittersweet to look back on those times in my early 20s. It's like I was so young and innocent and I was so close to that dream, but I was literally watching it go up in smoke. And at a point, I kind of started to realize that. So one night I'd be playing a gig in Hollywood with like Phil Taylor from Motorhead as our drummer. And then after the show, I'd be creeping up and down the alleys of Hollywood, like trading CDs and tapes to dealers for bags of dope and negotiating deals with homeless people and hookers. I mean, it was just really, really dark and sad. And my band would basically just go around and around the Hollywood club scene for like five years and just never get anywhere. You know, we got a little record deal with BMG for a minute and then we got dropped. Uh, we once got called on by David Bowie's producer to record some demos. Then I was high and I lost his card and that was the end of that. <laughs> there was no internet then. It wasn't like you could just Google Tim Palmer and find the guy's, you know, production office or something. It's like, if you lost someone's card back then, you lost their ass. And I did and probably lost a lot of opportunities as a result of just being so out of my goddamn mind. I've been drinking every single day for years at this time. And I was used to living as an alcoholic. And I had no argument with that. I just sort of accepted. Yeah, I drink every day. That's it. But the hard drugs were really starting to take a toll. And that actually bothered me. It's like they were controlling my whole life. 
I didn't ever not crave drugs. So I was constantly obsessed on when I was going to get them, how I'd get more, what I was going to do when those ran out. It's just insanity. And if you've never been addicted, because people have a hard time understanding it if you haven't experienced it. And I'm not you know, trying to get sympathy or anything like that. I mean, I made my own choices and I take responsibility for my actions. But um, if you're wondering like why we do what we do, I might describe it like this. Imagine being without food or water for like two days, but knowing in the other room there was as much water and food as you could have. It's like, it's this insane urge that does not stop and you can't make it go away. So I'd quit one thing and then I'd start another. I'd get off one drug and I'd celebrate for a couple of days and then I'd just pick something else up. It was like switching seats in the Titanic. You know, it's like you're still going down no matter what seat you're in. And I kind of knew that. But I really wanted to be sober, which to me meant just smoking weed. But I'd always get trapped again. I wanted to just be like this happy stoner guy and not do any of the hard stuff and not drink because that was just hurting me so bad, but I could not make it happen. So because I had this sort of frailty and this weakness and I knew I was just choking so hard in life, I really just started to hate myself and just the self-loathing set in. And I also hated just about everyone else. I was really angry. And I had so much drama in my life. It was just like problems on top of problems on top of problems, just money, legal, relationships, drama, drama, drama. And emotionally, I was just constantly in fear. I just lived in anxiety and self-hatred. It was worse because I actually knew I was killing myself. It's like I knew on some level that I was meant for something other than that fate. I was totally trapped, and knowing that actually made it hurt more somehow. I rarely slept, and I spent most of my nights wandering around this area called the Yucca Corridor, which was controlled by the 18th Street Gang in Hollywood. And I just, you know, spent all night basically buying drugs, using them, going back, getting more drugs. And I'd have to dress up like a homeless, well, I don't know if I had to, but <laughs> I made the decision at some point. It seemed to make sense, and it kind of worked. To dress up like a homeless person to avoid being robbed or arrested. So I just, I would look like a street urchin basically. So I didn't look like a young white kid with money out trying to buy drugs in the middle of the night. Now I did manage to avoid getting arrested. I mean, miraculously, I only got busted once and that was at a dead show in Orange County. And I just got a misdemeanor pot possession, which is just crazy after all the shit that I did. But I was actually very careful. So I avoided being arrested uh, with my little homeless getup, but not being robbed. I did actually get robbed, which was not too awesome. But I almost got kidnapped, and I got out of that part, so I guess I got off easy. Strangely, during this period while I was tearing my own life apart, I started to get really into health food and juicing and all that. Now, both my parents had been into it, so I knew on some level that was probably the only way I was going to survive my lifestyle. So I'd stay up all night partying. Uh, smoke a couple packs of cigarettes every day, and then go in for a wheatgrass in the morning and take tons of vitamins. I don't know, maybe I thought carrot juice would counteract everything else I was doing. But during those last couple years of total career and self-destruction, members of my family started going to India and visiting this guru named Sai Baba. They would return with these fantastic stories of miracles that Sai Baba would perform. I sometimes dreamt that this guru would somehow be able to save me, you know, with his magical powers. And I guess I believed the stories because they were coming from my own family, people that I knew and trusted. They weren't crazy and they weren't liars. So I just thought, God, there's something going on here. And I guess maybe 
that was my first consideration of something that you might call God, was that maybe there was an avatar that God worked through that was able to perform these miracles and help people. But one thing I knew for sure is that my life had become this lame, cliche story. It went like this. Small-town kid moves to Hollywood to be a rock star, but gets caught up in the underbelly of the drug scene and eventually dies of an overdose. I mean, how lame is that? I even knew at the time when I was living that cliche that it was lame. So I really wanted out. It wasn't just the pain, but it was like, God, no, this is not what I planned on. This is not what I had in mind. I did not come here and work so hard and you know get so close to success to just end up petering out. So I wanted a way out, but I also knew that I couldn't help myself. I knew that I didn't have the willpower. I just, I tried, I tried, I tried. It didn't work. Now, I also knew about treatment centers and 12-step groups and all that stuff, but you got to understand, I was just terrified. I mean, terror, terrified to be 100% sober. I just wanted to cut out the hard stuff, like I said, and just smoke weed and just, you know, be happy, like be Rasta. <laughs> and it just wouldn't happen. But I had no religion. I didn't really have a solid concept of God. I didn't grow up in church. I just knew that there had to be some kind of, I don't know, spiritual approach or something that could help me. I mean, maybe this Sai Baba guy could somehow save me. As crazy as that, as that seemed, I used to actually, I think, send prayers to that guy in India. Like, hey, if you can you know, manifest a gold bracelet out of your hand you know, in thin air, could you come over here and get these drugs out of me? But anyway, around that time, my cousin Aaron brought back this book from one of his trips to India, and the book was called I Am That by Nisargadatta Maharaj, an Indian saint. And I still have this, you know, the actual book to this day. And it had the following quote on the cover, which for some reason had this very deep meaning to me. And I'm going to read it for you now, and maybe it might have some meaning for you. The real does not die. The unreal never lived. Imagine a building collapsing, some rooms in ruins, some intact. But can you speak of the space as ruined or intact? It is only the structure that has suffered, and the people who happen to live in it. Nothing happened to the space itself. Similarly, nothing happens to life when it breaks down and names are wiped out. The goldsmith melts down old jewelry to make new. Once you know that death happens to the body and not to you, you just watch your body falling off like a discarded garment. The real you is timeless and beyond life and death. The body will survive as long as it is needed. It is not important that it should live long. Now, it's strange to me that that particular piece spoke to me so much because at the time, I wasn't so sure that I even wanted to live. I mean, it kind of sounds like an invitation to go ahead and let yourself die because it's no big deal. But it had some deep meaning to me, and I think what it was is that I realized that there was something bigger than myself, and that was sort of a catalyst to some events that were going to lead to my rebirth of sorts. Now, the rest of the book took me some 15 years to even begin to understand, and I understand it a bit now. I can take it in, but it'll probably take me a lifetime, if not a few of them, to actually you know, get it at depth. I was touring the West Coast to follow the Grateful Dead a lot at this time, so I'd ended up selling mushrooms as side income, as you do kind of when you're a deadhead, right? So one night, I'm just tripping balls in this apartment in Hollywood, and I have this cloud-parting moment of clarity. 
And the net result of that experience was that I decided that I wanted to get sober. Not just dreaming about it, but it was like, I told a friend, you know, I told a drug buddy, like, dude, I think I'm out. He's like, what? No, (laughs) don't go. It's like uh, drug addicts are like crabs in a barrel. You don't have to put a lid on it because uh, if one tries to crawl out, the other ones will drag them back in. But I saw the light, I guess, while I was high as shit on mushrooms that night. And as my life continued to unravel, a strange chain of events took place. This is when I learned one of my most cherished principles, coined by Shakespeare, goes like this. There is no such thing as good or bad. Only thinking makes it so. And if you don't get anything else out of this podcast, that's your takeaway. You can ponder that for uh, many a year, and it's really meaningful. But what it meant to me was a bunch of tragic shit happened, which later I became able to view as some sort of divine intervention. So here's what happened. I was at a party, drunk, of course, and got bit on the face by a Rottweiler. Like really gnarly. Blood, emergency room, stitches, all that. It's terrifying. So that was bad, right? Well, as a result, I got a court settlement for around $7,000. So that was good, right? Of course, now I spent about uh, six of that 7000 almost exclusively on drugs in under six weeks and became terribly strung out and addicted because I'd never had enough money to really do it right. You know what I'm saying? So that was bad. Blew all the money on drugs. I weighed 135 pounds at the end of that run, and I'm 6'2". So that was not a good scene. Now, as a result of that last run, I finally hit a point of complete and total despair and hopelessness. So this one, I guess, was good and bad. But I illustrate that story because you can kind of turn that to anything in your life. You know, those experiences where something, quote unquote, bad happens and it's the worst thing ever. And then whether it's two weeks or two years or 20 years later, you look back and go, aha, I know why that happened. It was actually the best thing that ever happened to me, right? So what happened was I called my mom from this drug den in Canoga Park, which is a Horrible place to try and kick drugs, by the way. (laughs) Don't ever go there if you're going to do it. And I asked my mom to get me into rehab, which was clearly the best decision of my life. It was also the hardest. I was so scared to be sober, man. I did not want to have feelings. I mean, to this day, feelings are, I avoid them like a plague. It's taken me so many years to be able to just sit and experience an uncomfortable feeling. And I spent my whole life running from it. Now, the only thing that scared me more than being sober at that time, though, fortunately, was not being sober. It was the end of the road for me. So you could say that that dog bite actually saved my life, and I'll be forever grateful to Rottweilers, but still scared shitless of them. So I had my last drink to this day in the parking lot of this treatment center, and that was February 15th, 1997. And on that day, I was literally born again. I mean, not in a Christian sense, but... (laughs) My new life was about to begin, and so, so grateful for that moment. So I check into this place, and I ask the counselors, what do I do? I, you know, I went in there just completely shit-faced at night, and they were going to close the doors, actually, because I wouldn't stop drinking in the parking lot. And, you know, my mom's like, dude, if you want this, you got to go in. So I finally complied, and I went in and then passed out. But I woke up the next day, I said, you know, what, what do I do? I'm freaking out. And they said, oh, you have to pray. I was like, Pray? I mean, I, you know, I got the Indian saints and I, you know, I'm kind of like playing around with that, but I'm like, pray, how about some meds? You know, I was so pissed that they wouldn't give me anything to take the edge off. I'm like, how about some clonopin or Valium? Like, just give me some lightweight shit. 
just so I don't freak out. And they said, nope, praying is all you've got, kid. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Pray to what? Santa Claus? The Tooth Fairy? You got to help me out here. But uh, it was to no avail. It was time to go cold turkey. So I really had no choice um, but to pray to God, as weird as that sounds, or higher power, or the universe, nature, whatever works for you. I really didn't care at the time. You know, a lot of people, they get sober, they argue with the process, and, you know, I'm not going to believe in God. I hate that word. It's like, dude, I was so ready. I was so done. I was so at a bottom. I honestly think if you would have asked me to be a Hare Krishna and go sell books at the goddamn airport to get sober, I probably would have done it. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was very willing. So I was just, you know, gullible and desperate enough to try this prayer thing. And what happened was I, you know, got on my knees like they do in the movies, I guess. I probably thought about, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever even seen anyone pray. I don't know where I got this, but I know you put your hands together in front of your chest and you get on your knees, you kind of lean on the bed and you say some shit. And so what I said was something to the effect of, uh, God, whatever you are, if you're there, you know, would you help me? I need you now. I really, really want to be sober. You know, you got to remove this obsession. And the weirdest thing happened, the most profound thing of my entire life, in that moment, on that first day, and this is, you know, 19 and a half years later, that obsession, that craving, that desire to get out of myself using drugs and alcohol absolutely 100% disappeared. Like poof, gone, magic magician shit you know the room didn't fill up with white light it wasn't like you know a wind blew through me or anything like that it wasn't dramatic it was just gradually over the course of that 28 days i realized ah this is weird i think they could let me out of here right now and i would be fine and they did and i was and because of that i learned the most powerful truth i think i've ever learned in my life and it is this you don't have to believe in god or even call it God for that matter, in order to access its power. So despite all my negative beliefs and programming about religion and all those jerks at church and those hypocrites and all that crap, all I had to do was to be willing to believe. It's like the great cosmic joke. So you don't have to be a believer to reap the benefits of a spiritual life. You just have to do it. So I get out of treatment and I come back to LA. I got rid of my apartment. I got rid of all my friends. I voluntarily decided just to go on a couch tour rather than risk my sobriety by being in that old toxic environment. And my mind was just so fried. I mean, it was like, I can't believe I could even walk down the street. Thank God I didn't own a car at the time because I probably would have killed myself. But I was quickly learning that there was a lot more to being sober than just not drinking and taking drugs. I had major issues like brain damage and I would say really emotional retardation because I started drinking and using so young. I mean, I'm talking eight, nine, ten years old, full on. So I think I was quite, well, I don't think, I know I was quite stunted. <laughs> what happened was I happened to get back in touch with my fashion stylist friend, Kikai, that I told you about earlier. And she needed a house and a dog sitter. And I was, you know, homeless at the time. So I, of course, obliged. She was going on tour with Tina Turner, you know, as a stylist. So I go stay at her house. She's got this nice place. It's probably the nicest apartment I'd ever been in. And, you know, I think she was gone maybe two months. And during the course she was gone, I almost burned the house down. The fire department came. I almost killed the dog because I I bought this $20 couch off a homeless guy that was <laughs> going by in front of the apartment with a shopping cart. And I had, I had found an apartment. So I was like, hey, man, you want to sell that couch? So I gave him 20 bucks for this couch. 
bring it up into the place and it filled the apartment with roaches. I mean, just total infestation. It was a beautiful, clean apartment. So I went and bought all these roach motels and her dog ended up eating them all and, um, you know, probably almost died. If you're listening to this, Kika, I'm sorry about that. I don't think I ever told you that story, but hey, Henry ended up living a long and prosperous life. So here we are. And thank you for trusting me. I really did my best. And I'll always carry a debt of gratitude to her for just giving me a shot at a new career, which eventually ended up, you know, leading me to where I am today and having a very successful business in fashion. I mean, I can't believe that she gave me that break. And that was really, really my first big break. It's one of those things where you have to know someone. Well, she was the one I knew. So what happened was I started working for her and the job that she booked right when I started was with Aerosmith. So here I am working as an assistant stylist with Aerosmith. By the way, if you're listening to this and you don't know what a fashion stylist or a celebrity stylist is, I think I better define it. Now, a stylist doesn't design clothes. What they do is they go shopping for clothes. So they dress celebrities and models. They pick out the outfits. A lot of people I meet still don't know what a stylist is, so I felt the need to explain it in case you don't come from that industry and you're like thinking I'm talking about doing hair. It's someone who shops and dresses people. Okay, so anyway. Here I am, barely sober, out of my goddamn mind, and I'm like working with Steven Tyler. You know, it's like, it was just so weird. It was amazing. And he was sober. The whole band was sober and they were quite public about it. So it was just cool as shit. I'd get to sit and drink non-alcoholic beers with Steven and ask him, how you play in a band without being high? I mean, that was one of my big concerns is how am I going to be a rock star and be sober? I mean, it's so lame, you know? And he, of course, encouraged me that he was not lame. And you know what? He wasn't. He was one of the coolest dudes in rock, you know, still sober or not. So that was a really an amazing experience. And uh, what happened was they would put me up in this room at the Sunset Marquee Hotel, and it was the wardrobe room. So it's where we did all the fittings and stuff like that. And it was like, it was just so amazing. You know, I got to stay in the room and kind of watch the clothes and I'd get to order food from room service and I'd never even been in a hotel that nice before. I'd never eaten creme brulee or filet mignon. I'd never been around clothes like that. I mean, I had become kind of a street kid, you know? So I got to stay in there and it was really funny. And, you know, I'm concerned with who might hear this, but what the fuck? It was a long time ago. One of the things I used to do when I was staying in that room is when everyone went home for the night, I'd go out and, you know, play in clubs and stuff like that. So I would wear Aerosmith's clothes out to go hang out, you know. But at that hotel, there's a there's a bar called the Whiskey Bar, and it's right in the lobby. And so I had to, like, sneak past that bar in hopes that no one from their crew or them or my boss, God forbid, would freaking see me sneaking out in some $3,000 leather jacket or something. If you want to be a stylist and you're listening to this, please don't ever do anything like that. It was obviously unethical and unprofessional, but funny as hell to look back on. So began my life as a stylist, right? Which I ended up doing for the next 17 years. Now it was a really good job for me because it was creative. You know, I got to play with clothes and colors and I was actually really good at the creative part. And it also allowed me to pursue my own music at the same time. So during early sobriety, like I played in tons of bands for those first few years and kind of did both at the same time. Eventually I ended up in a band called Stu Boss and that took me on five tours of Europe and we did a couple albums. But, you know, as I started to kind of achieve success in music, at least to some degree, it was one of those things where, ah, oh, this isn't really what I thought it would be. And, you know, granted, we weren't Aerosmith, so I'm not riding around in a private jet. I mean, we're kind of, you know... 
riding around in little vans. And, it, you know, it's rough touring when you're playing clubs and things like that. But I still started to discover, like, yeah, I don't know if this is actually the answer after all. And that was, you know, 15 years into giving it a go at music. Eventually what happened was my styling career started to eclipse my music career. And I think I just had to accept that I made a much better living dressing musicians than actually being one. And if I'm really honest with myself, because I've looked at this a lot, I don't know if I ever really liked playing in a band as much as I liked telling people that I play in a band. You know what I mean? It was kind of an ego feeding thing. And my self-worth was so wrapped up in that identity. Oh, I'm a musician. You know, I dress super cool. And I was just, I liked the attention. I liked playing a show. But at the same time, I was full of self-doubt. And I always felt like I sucked and I couldn't play. And I was so insecure and self-conscious, especially since I was sober and I couldn't, you know, I didn't have anything to take the edge off. So as I grew spiritually, I started kind of looking into that a bit. And I think that's where it started to wear off. You know, it's like, God, I really don't like going on tour. I don't like doing a lot of the things that you do and have to do when you're in a band. I didn't have the passion to really give me the discipline to just go for it. Eventually, you know, that is kind of why I faded out of playing music. And now I just do it at home for fun. And I love it now. Now as a bass player, now I just play guitar at home. And it's amazing. It's a great creative release. And it's something I do when I get stuck on a creative project it kind of gets me back into a flow state so that's where the music career went but anyway getting back to the first year of recovery i started to feel all the repercussions of the damage i'd done in all those years of debauchery so i was just in terrible shape mentally emotionally physically i had all these endless you know health issues and i was constantly sick and tired i was just in bad shape you can't spend 15 years of your life just tearing your mind and body and soul down, jump back and think, cool, now two years later, I'm brand new. It just doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, I was unaware of that and had to learn it the hard way. So the initial bliss of being spared from a life of addiction started to wear off, basically. And I knew that more work had to be done. So began, you know, my journey of creating the amazing life that I have today and really what ended up being the basis of this show, ultimately. I became obsessed with health food, yoga, going to therapy. I mean, just trying anything and everything to improve myself and become the person that I knew I was born to be, that winner that was somewhere deep inside there. I've gone to some pretty drastic measures in the past 20 years in my search for answers. Trust me, you're about to find out. And, you know, some of them worked and some of them didn't. I've done a lot of personal research and development which has continued to this day, and also, you know, formed the basis of this new venture that I'm doing now. I've tried practicing meditation, chanting mantras, learning NLP, taking three-week silent retreats in India, jumping on a rebounder, using a negative ion generator, soaking in hot springs, listening to subliminal brainwave tapes, taking antidepressants, making raw goat milk kefir, getting ozone-infused colonics for 12 days straight in Hawaii, being blessed by holy men and saints, practicing the power of now, psychotherapy, participating in a mock death and funeral for myself, taking smart drugs, getting my aura red, roasting in far-infrared saunas, growing my own sprouts, wearing a zapper, receiving diksha from gurus, getting injected with vitamins and minerals, dousing myself with transdermal magnesium oil, learning semen or chi retention during sex, and soaking my feet in ionic foot baths. Auto-urine therapy, you'll have to Google that one, carrying crystals, 
injecting human growth hormone, having tantric sex, eating farm to table, joining anonymous groups, making my own alkaline water, wearing therapeutic sandals, electronically grounding my bed, computer, and car, receiving pranic healing, doing a course in miracles, getting electroacupuncture, vortexing my water, breathing through my chakras, shitting on a squatty potty, tapping myself with EFT, sleeping on a cooling mat in a pitch black room, and doing the work by Byron Katie, making vision boards, barefoot trail running, hanging upside down, wearing psychic jewelry, doing extreme neurofeedback training, burning my skin with red hot sticks, then rubbing poisonous cambo frog venom in the wounds, taking clay baths, eating clay, becoming a vegetarian for 10 years, going gluten-free, eating organic, quitting GMOs, firing red lasers on my brain through my nasal passages, giving up cigarettes, nude sunbathing, stem cell injections, scalar wave resonance exposure, skin brushing, Native American sweat lodge ceremonies, overdosing on Chinese herbs, sun gazing, shiatsu massage, showering in cold water, taking ice baths, and doing cryotherapy, getting handcuffed and tasered in urban evasion training, eating for my blood type, properly combining my food, getting prolotherapy injections, fasting on juice for 21 days, fermenting my own kombucha, studying the Kabbalah, punching pillows, bathing in hyperbaric oxygen chambers, forgiving evil perpetrators, getting my brain hemispheres synchronized, sleeping on powerful magnets, driving around with copper pyramids on my head, purifying my air, sleeping under a blanket developed by the Russian space program to shield myself from EMFs, collecting my own spring water from mountaintops, watering my garden with ocean water and rock dust minerals, eating raw beef liver, blocking blue light, soaking in magnesium and baking soda baths, making bison bone broth, taking coffee, enzyme, and probiotic enemas, blocking my phone's radiation, huffing essential oil diffusers, filtering my shower water, and floating in sensory deprivation tanks. But at this point, I'd have to say that through all this experimentation, all that crazy shit that I've done, nothing, and I mean nothing, has had more of an impact on my life than learning how to apply the spiritual principles of addiction recovery in my life. Now, it's a paradox because this is the most simple approach to living. Like these down-to-earth truths, they seem very simple, but that's what's created the most positive change in my life. So just by doing my best, not even perfectly, to live a life based on things like humility, honesty, integrity, acceptance, uh, faith, prayer, meditation, forgiveness, service to others, courage, patience, compassion, open-mindedness, willingness, self-respect, kindness, and most of all, just unconditional love, not only for others, but for myself and just for life in general. Those are the things that have totally transformed my life beyond recognition. The good news is, is that it's a process with no endpoint. I used to always think that, okay, I just have to do this and do that, and then I'll get to a point where I'm happy all the time. And for me, the spiritual journey, which has been at first embarked upon out of desperation, as you might have gathered by now, and then later because I just enjoy the process so much, it's been about not trying to get to an endpoint. It's about 
the day-to-day life and the more I embrace spirituality, actually, sometimes the less peaceful it is. There's oftentimes every couple years, huge upheavals where I have to really, really dig and look at what I and my life are all about. But the best part of this approach is that you don't have to do it perfectly. I have to abandon perfectionism little by little. Okay, now back to styling. So when I gave up playing music, my career as a celebrity stylist really took off. And I went to work with tons of great people like Marilyn Manson, Kanye West, the Foo Fighters, and no doubt. Sometimes I'd work with women like Kim Kardashian and a few actresses here and there too. But during my career as a stylist, I worked on around 45 music videos, 50 commercials, tons of magazine shoots, award shows, red carpet appearances, and all that stuff. So I kind of did my thing. But then in 2008, I had an epiphany of sorts. I was hitting all these boot camps, you know, for business and entrepreneurship and all this stuff. And suddenly I kind of realized that I had some knowledge that people really wanted at that time. And that was how to become a fashion stylist. This career had sort of become really sought after by a lot of people and none of the big fashion schools touched it. So I decided I'd make my own school that kids wouldn't hate, you know, a school that didn't suck like the ones that I went to. So it was going to be a school that was fun and it would be fast and it would be much cheaper than college. And unlike other schools, I'd actually get my students a job, you know, because I had all these connections in the industry. So I knew that if I could train them, I could also get them to work, which I knew would be a great value to the students. So I created School of Style, the world's first independent fashion school for stylists. And I had my first class on November 8th in 2008. Now, as an interesting twist of fate here, on November 9th, 2008, the very next day, was the premiere of a TV show called The Rachel Zoe Project, which was a reality show about a stylist. And it was hugely successful. It totally put styling on the map. So I guess you could say maybe I owe a few royalties to Rachel but it was just a matter of a good idea at the right time. Then in 2009, my business partner and friend Lauren Messiah joined the company and things really took off because we just made a really great team. And since then, we've trained over 3,000 students and held classes in over eight cities. And to this day, we're by far the most respected and legitimate styling school in the world. I mean, our students have gone on to work with hundreds of top celebrities and magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, So we're kind of the only place in town and we're definitely the only place that has access to these amazing jobs that we link our students up with. Now, having zero education and knowing virtually nothing about business going into this has been an immense learning experience. And luckily, I've had some really good mentors and I've studied tons of books and podcasts on entrepreneurship, marketing, sales, leadership in order to keep this thing on the rails. And in 2015, we broke a million dollars in sales, which for a guy like me coming from where I came from is just mind boggling. I don't get how that happened. Well, I know how it happened, (laughs) a lot of hard work and blood, sweat and tears, but it's really not about the money. It's about everything that I'm learning. You know, the owning a business is about learning how to apply a different set of principles to an area of my life. So I've got a long way to go, but I've worked hard to run the school like an adult and hopefully learn from my mistakes along the way. There's an interesting thing that I read somewhere, and that is that the top 10 people with the highest IQ in the world all work for someone else. And this study that I found, I forget where I found it, but it sounded true, so I'm going to repeat it, is that entrepreneurs are basically smart enough to have a good idea at the right time. 
but we're just dumb enough to not be able to calculate the risks. And I would definitely fit that profile. It's like I had this good idea and I never even occurred to me that it wouldn't work. I'm just like, I'm going to go for it. And I think if I would be perhaps highly intellectual or a little smarter, I might not have started it because no one had done it. And um, thankfully for me, no one did it. I was the first. So as School of Style grew and became like the main source of my income, I kind of faded out of fashion styling. It was sort of like music where the passion started to wane over the years. And not to mention just being a stylist is a lot of work. And after 17 years, it's like, okay, I think I accomplished what I meant to there. And I kind of moved on. So in 2015, I retired from that and made a decision to pursue my ultimate passion. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now helping people overcome personal challenges and to create a healthy and fulfilling lifestyle. So, you know, helping someone pick out a cute pair of shoes is all fine and dandy and, you know, service is service, right? But dude, teaching someone how to meditate or how to create a non-toxic home is just so much more meaningful to me. And in the past 20 years, I've just, I've studied so much, I've applied so much, I've learned so much, and I've shared that with so many people that, I don't know, it just kind of became my lifestyle. And for some reason, it never occurred to me until last year that I was qualified to, you know, be a voice in this business and actually create a company around personal development and health and wellness. And I got to thank my friend Neil Strauss really for giving me my first break on this side of things. He booked me as one of the main speakers at one of his mastermind intensives, these groups he has for entrepreneurs and stuff. You know, I was like speaking with tons of my health industry heroes, many of whom will be featured guests on this show soon. But my talk got the only standing ovation of the whole weekend. And that, along with a nudge from my fellow speaker and friend Daniel Vitalis, kind of gave me the confidence I needed to make this move. I guess when you're just living your life, it's hard to see the progress you've made. You know, like I read that list of all the weird shit that I've done and And that's just, I mean, that's the stuff I've done. I didn't even count what I've been working on this month. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to be objective about oneself and see, you know, what I really have to offer. Cause when I talk to other people, they're so interested in this stuff, but the thing is they don't really want to do the work. Like no one wants to go that hard. They don't want to go that deep. They just want the results. And so I sort of found that my niche is to filter through all of this stuff and health and spirituality and personal development and find what really works and then be able to share just that with people because I enjoy the process of doing all this stuff. It's not like work to me. I mean, this is just, this is exactly what I do when I'm not at work normally. So once I got over my fear and self-doubt and all that bullshit, I just said, and for, you know, you guys figured out, right? This is an explicit podcast. I I can't filter myself. I just said, fuck it. I'm going to create a new type of stylist, a life stylist. And that to me is someone that helps people design the ultimate lifestyle. So putting all these pieces together and creating the ultimate lifestyle, that's it. So through my podcast that I'm obviously doing now and video content, online classes and private coaching, I'm going to teach people how to do that. And um, this is the start of it really. So it hasn't been easy creating another startup while I'm running School of Style but little by little, um, getting it done. I mean, I've been working on this podcast for like since 1982. It feels like no, it's been, it's been like six months, and it's just it's brutal, man. You look you look at people doing, you're like, oh, I could do that. I mean, I know a lot of people that have shows, and 
It's a lot harder, let me tell you. I've been through, you know, a long, hard road already. Lost a couple editors. You know, you record an interview, it gets deleted. There's all sorts of crazy shit happens. But to be honest, recording this episode has been one of the hardest parts. Partly because it just feels, I don't know, sort of douchey to sit and tell your life story when you're not really famous. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not Tom Cruise. Like, I don't even know if there's 10 people listening to this or if anyone's interested, but seems that some people find it so, so I'm going to do it anyway. But the main thing that kind of makes it scary is just putting myself out there in such a raw and real way. But I guess it's too late because we're, we're nearing the end here and it's kind of done. So here we are at the beginning of my next major life journey, right? And I have to say, I've never felt so sure about what my mission is. It's like immediately when I started moving in this direction, every door opened and I have this sense of peace inside. Not like I've arrived, you know, there's always stuff to work on, but I just have this sense of purpose and I know this is what I'm here to do. I think it's the first time in my life where my talent and my passion are in alignment. You know, when I was doing music, I think I had a lot more passion in the early years than I did talent. I was okay. I'm, I'm all right. I wasn't exceptional. I wasn't Jimi Hendrix, you know, I mean, how many people are, but I wasn't the guy that's playing over there and everyone's like, oh my God, you know, I was just, I could get by, but I, I really wanted it. And then after a while, I didn't really want it. And then probably a similar kind of thing in styling and then school of style was just a random thing that happened. But this here, the lifestylist, what you're a part of on the ground floor (laughs) is what I really feel that I'm meant here to do. And I don't know what that's going to look like exactly, podcasts, videos, whatever. We'll see where it goes. But I have to say that it just brings me, you know, so much joy to be able to share all the stuff that I work on with other people. And honestly, I've been doing it for free for 20 years And so if I, you know, make some kind of business out of it or however that ends up looking, I'm just thrilled, like whatever happens, I'm already winning by the very fact that you're here with me listening. So I just want to close by saying that I'm, you know, with all my heart, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude as I sit here by myself talking to you, even though you don't exist yet, at just having the opportunity to share this moment right now with you, wherever you are, whoever you are. And I just really look forward to you, the listener, riding shotgun with me on this journey because it's going to be a wild ride. And I'm going to keep it going as long as this thing's got wheels, okay? So blessings to you and yours, and I look forward to the next one. Well, we made it. This is the conclusion of the first and premiere episode of the Lifestylist podcast. I thanked you before, and I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. It was a real task getting this one done. So if you made it to the end and you're hearing this, I really appreciate you being with me. And as a token of my appreciation, I would like to remind you of your episode upgrade. So to get this amazing PDF document with my brand new exclusive supercharged bulletproof coffee video and tons of links and resources that I mentioned during this episode, all you have to do is text lifestylist1 to the number 44222. So text lifestylist1 to 44222 or on your browser, go to lukestory.com forward slash lifestylist1 and you get to download that for free. It's awesome. It's like a four page PDF with tons of resources and I'm really happy to share that with you. And then don't forget at bulletproof.com, you're probably going to want to get some bulletproof coffee after you see this sick video that I made. 
But at Bulletproof.com, which was the sponsor for this show, you can save 10% at checkout by entering the code LUKESTORY. That's L-U-K-E-S-T-O-R-E-Y. So that is the end, and I look forward to sharing the next nine days with you. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get all of those downloaded to your app, because I don't know if you can commit to being here with me every day for an hour plus, but get those because there's some great stuff to come. And as I was wrapping up the show here, I, I took a little break and was playing some guitar. I recently brought my guitar into the studio here where I record the podcast because I'm just sick of walking out to the living room. But as I said earlier, I think I do it sometimes just to kind of get in a flow state and just get a break from work and sitting at my desk or standing at my desk as the case might be. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just play a little guitar and just have a little jam to take us out here as an ode to my musical past. So I thought, what better way to send us off into the future of this podcast than to play a little music. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the next episode, which will be tomorrow, episode two, featuring Daniel Vitalis. So enjoy this brief interlude, and be well. (laughs) 